Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Twenty twenty two was the year that brought war back to Europe. It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine. When Russian forces invaded Ukraine in the early morning of February the twenty fourth, it united a flailing NATO in its shared resolve against Putin's aggression. This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. Now the UK and our allies will begin to impose the sanctions on Russia that we have already prepared. The war shook up the world, testing old alliances and creating new dividing lines. It affected energy and grain supplies, putting pressure on governments across the world and affecting every one of us in some way. On the streets, in the homes, and behind the wheels of this country, there's a cost to bear of a faraway conflict. So as a new year begins, we've asked two of our most experienced foreign correspondents for their views on what comes next in Russia and Ukraine and the ripples around the world in Europe, China and the Middle East. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Ukraine and beyond. The world in 2023. My name's Catherine Phil, but I am the diplomatic correspondent of The Times. In fact, this is a sort of wandering foreign correspondent role. And as such, I have spent a very great deal of the last year in Ukraine, commencing about 10 days before the invasion started. My name's Peter Conradi. I'm the Europe editor of The Sunday Times, which is sort of a kind of glorified reporter role. I'm based in Paris. I range around Europe. I've not been to Ukraine, but I've been observing it from afar. To understand what might happen on the global stage over the next year, we really need to look back at what was probably the defining moment of the last year. So take me back to late February 2022. Catherine, you were on the ground in Ukraine. Just talk us through what it was like in in that final week before everything changed. And what was your reaction when you realised that it was happening, that Russia was invading Ukraine? Well, it was an extraordinary event because most of the warnings that Russia was was planning a full-blown invasion of Ukraine were coming from Western intelligence and they weren't really coming out of Ukraine. And so if you were in Kyiv at the time, 
you were hearing a very strong counterbalance to that message from the Ukrainians who just said, this is not going to happen. It just felt so extraordinary that a war could happen in 2022 on the European continent of that scale. So there was a sense of disbelief that this could really be about to happen. And yet we started to see more and more signs out of Moscow that Vladimir Putin was serious about what he was going to do. So we had sort of a week in which he recognised the independence of two breakaway republics within Ukraine. He gave some fairly extraordinary speeches in which his rhetoric became incredibly aggressive. Whoever would try to stop us and create further threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. Much more focus on Ukraine as not really having any kind of historical right to exist. And all this was ratcheting up to that day when, in fact, uh, yeah, I was woken up at about 5.30 in the morning with a full-blown invasion on our hands. I mean, that is extraordinary, to be in the middle of a European capital city where people are still going into work, stopping at a coffee shop, life is normal, to a full-scale invasion. What were those first few days like? I mean, there was a sense of complete disbelief and all the streets filled with cars of people trying to get out of the capital because there were at that stage cruise missiles raining down around Kyiv. Dawn in a European capital. Kyiv's civilians now direct targets in their own homes. They were trying to go for the city itself and that was possibly not expected. So people were fleeing really with very little preparation. I knew people who left to get to the Polish border that day, and I think it took them three or four days to get there because there were queues of traffic. Everything just shut down. The streets were deserted. There were air raid sirens. People were going down into the metro system to shelter from incoming strikes. And then suddenly a new reality set in within several days, a sort of fighting spirit came up amongst those people who had stayed in the capital. And just very quickly, you saw massive queues outside of government offices where people were queuing up to join the territorial defence units to protect their own neighbourhoods. There is no reason to believe that they're going to stop anytime soon. And their objective clearly, at least to me, seems to be the occupation of my entire country and uh, the destruction of everything that I love. I wouldn't really want to participate in, in anything like this, but I don't really have any choice because this is my home. What was so striking to me, I think, was that initial response of the people of Kiev to defend their own neighbourhoods. Peter, for you, tell us where were you when this happened and what was your reaction? Um, I was actually watching it from Paris with great interest because it's a part of the world that I'm very familiar with. I worked as a correspondent based in Moscow from 1988 to 1995 and have been following events in that part of the world since. I, like Catherine and like I suppose most people, 
didn't really believe that when push came to shove, Putin would actually invade. I myself had been in, in Kyiv in December of 2021. And even then, there were these sort of two conflicting narratives. I was talking to people there who were saying to me, oh, it's not a matter of if the Russians will come, it's when they will come. And other people were saying, no, this is ridiculous. And I think we saw that just days before the invasion. Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, appeared to poo-poo the threat of invasion. Even then, it wasn't clear. Did he really not believe that the Russians were going to invade? Or was this sort of calculation that if he expressed that view too, it would lead to panic, it would lead to chaos? For you, watching all of this unfold in Paris, what was the reaction like there? What is interesting looking at this crisis is the differing reactions or the different approaches of the different European countries. In one camp, there was basically Britain and the Central Eastern European countries, particularly those countries that were either part of the former Soviet Union or were part of the Soviet bloc and knew what the Russians were capable of. You've then got France and Germany, to some extent Italy, on the other side that had a slightly less hardline approach. President Macron, the French leader, Olaf Scholz, his German counterpart, seemed to hope that there would be some way of negotiating a solution to the crisis or that somehow if they kept talking to Putin, the worst wouldn't happen. What has happened in the meantime is that on the surface, at least, there has been extraordinarily sort of unified approach by all the NATO members, which has probably surprised Vladimir Putin. But always in the background, there is this sort of suggestion that they are not quite singing from the same hymn sheet as, uh, say, the Americans are or the British are. And Catherine, how much do you think Ukraine has changed in its own sense of nationhood and its sense of its place in the world? That's a great question, because if Vladimir Putin's prediction was that he could crack Ukraine in two, and there was such a strong pro-Russian element in Ukrainian society, then not only was he wrong, I think he's created far more solidarity than existed before the war. You saw a sort of flowering of Ukrainian nationalism like never before. I met young Ukrainians whose first language was Russian, who now refuse to speak it. I think this is going to go on for a long time, and it will be interesting to see if the huge support that has rallied behind President Zelensky, whether that will hold and whether there will be any crumbling of solidarity amongst the Ukrainian people. But I think that there's no question that Vladimir Putin has unleashed a new wave of Ukrainian nationalism that is not going to go away. And Catherine, you've reported really movingly about some of the horrors that have unfolded on the ground, which in a way makes it even harder for Ukrainians to overcome their anger at Russia, I suppose. How do you see this playing out over the next year or so? I mean, there's a lot of talk now about what it would take to get people around a table to talk about peace deals, for example. I always think of that. Is it Elliot, that line, after such knowledge, what forgiveness? They said after Butcher, no forgiveness after Butcher. And then you had Izium, you've had Herson, you've had a series of horrors. This corpse is of a man in his 80s. He was found with his hands tied behind his back. His skull was deformed 
by violent blows to the head. Nearby, 17 Ukrainian soldiers have been found in a shallow grave. Since the war began, we've already opened more than 4,000 criminal proceedings regarding war crimes committed by soldiers of the Russian Federation in the Kharkiv region. I think it is going to be very hard. Every time that it has been suggested, even gently in places like Washington, that are hugely supportive of the government in Kyiv, that it might be time to negotiate. There's been very strong pushback from Kyiv. For example, it's been written into law now in Ukraine that there must not be any negotiation with a government led by Putin. The Zelensky government say they will settle for nothing less than their full territory, including Crimea, which I think is, is an extraordinarily hard ask. I'm not sure Ukraine's ever going to get Crimea back, to be honest. Crimea, which was lost after 2014 and which a lot of people have always thought was historically, you know, Russia had a greater claim to. Indeed. A lot depends, looking forward, on what happens on the battlefield. The Russians have called up a huge number of reservists who are not particularly skilled soldiers, but there's something like 300,000 of them who are going to start coming on stream for something that will look like a spring offensive. I think that's why you're now seeing the NATO countries, US in particular, talk about bringing in a new level of weaponry. And obviously, everyone wants to negotiate from a point of strength. It's not clear to me yet what that looks like for Russia. And Peter, how much do you think there are conversations happening already about at what point different European countries want Zelensky to get around a table with, with Putin? Are you starting to see differences? Initially, I think the Ukrainians would have been happy if the Russians essentially had retreated to the borders of before February the 24th, i.e. if the Russians had effectively remained in control of the Donbass and if Crimea had remained within Russia. Now, obviously, as the Ukrainians have done far better than expected during the war, their demands have changed. They have spoken very openly about wanting to regain the Donbass and they're making military inroads into it. And more controversially also, they've spoken about not being happy until they've actually reconquered Crimea. Crimea is a real stumbling point because when Putin incorporated it into Russia in 2014, he made a huge fuss about it. Joy in the streets of Moscow. Thousands strong bellowing the Russian anthem, welcoming Crimea back to fatherland Russia. It made it was a huge kind of propaganda triumph. We have already achieved much, he said. There is even more to do. We shall prevail because we are united. Glory to Russia. You know, we should bear in mind that this is somewhere that until 1954 was actually part of Russia proper. It wasn't part of Ukraine. So there's a lot of people in Russia who feel that this is Russian territory and it's rightfully Russian territory. And Seen from Europe and also, I think, seen from the United States, there is a concern of what would happen if the Ukrainians did reach the point where they would seriously be in with a chance of actually taking back Crimea or trying to take back Crimea. Both, I think, in terms of how the Russians would react. Would this be 
a red line? Would this be something that might even cause Vladimir Putin to use nuclear weapons? And also, I suppose there's another question of how welcome would the Ukrainians be in Crimea? The Ukraine voted very narrowly for the breakup of the Soviet Union, for Ukrainian independence. They consistently voted for pro-Russian political parties. It's not at all clear to me whether they would greet Ukrainian forces as liberators or whether they would actually treat them as, as, as invaders. So it, it would all, I think, be very, very messy indeed. There is concern in European capitals, in Washington also, about what would happen if the Ukrainians did actually make a serious attempt to, to retake Crimea. Do you think the countries that make up NATO, do you think the alliance has the resolve to keep presenting Ukraine with weapons to fight this war for at least another year, it seems, if there's no sign of a peace deal coming anytime soon? I think European governments are holding together remarkably well. They're showing remarkable degree of solidarity. If you look at public opinion, particularly in France, in Germany, in Italy, there are signs of war fatigue beginning to set in and suggestions that a majority would actually like Ukraine to start negotiating with Russia. But I think if the war still goes on into the spring, into the summer of next year, I mean, surely there will be pressure, I think, behind the scenes on the government in Kiev to sit down in some way with the Russians, I think, because ultimately every war does end with a ceasefire and some kind of agreement. It's just a question of how, you know, how we get from here to there and what that kind of agreement would ultimately look like. And Catherine, how has the war gone for Russia? It obviously, objectively, has gone horribly for the Russians. I think some of the reasons why it's gone horribly for them are very interesting and tell you quite a lot about Russia. One of the reasons that the Kremlin believed they could topple the government in Kyiv was that they were just getting very bad information from their spies in Ukraine. These spies were given budgets to essentially buy information from people and they weren't buying that information. They were just creaming it off for themselves and then just reporting back to the Kremlin what they thought the Kremlin wanted to hear. I remember vividly one unit who were involved in the defence of Kiev telling me, we've heard a lot of fairy stories about the strength of the Russian military, but actually corruption has hollowed it out. There are soldiers who don't exist. There is equipment that doesn't exist. All these kind of things are actually a bit of a reckoning for a corrupt Russian system that is crumbling from the inside. On the other side, I would say the sanctions that were put on Russia didn't collapse the economy as completely and as fast as was being expected. Now, I think in the medium to long term, there's going to be trouble for Russia economically. Of course, the Russians cope perfectly well without McDonald's. But for example, they don't cope without semiconductors, for example. So you've seen Russia turn to the Iranians for certain missile technology and drone technology. A contrail and a puff of smoke are what's left after Ukraine today shot down another kamikaze drone fired by Russia. But others got through. Russian supply chains have broken down and they're trying to find new ones. One of the things that's helped them is that the price of hydrocarbons has gone through the roof, as we are all painfully aware. 
And that has helped the Russians because three quarters of the world is not on the side of the West in this. They are finding other markets for their hydrocarbons, but you've seen a wholesale transformation of the European energy market. Europe is never going to rely again on Russia for energy. This is going to play out over years. I just don't think that we've seen all the effects yet on the Russian economy. I think that's absolutely the point that Russia's problem is not so much selling stuff, selling its energy. You know, you can always sell energy to somebody, even if your Western partners don't want it. But it, it is this problem of imports, not just for weapons, and it's obviously very crucial for weapons, but also for things like the car industry, for all sorts of other industry. And they just can't get these parts and they're having to resort to smuggling. There's a whole sort of class of people now whose job it is to basically find ways of diverting Western exports via perhaps Kazakhstan or Armenia or other countries sort of near Russia and bringing through the back door into Russia in a way that used to happen with high-tech stuff during the Soviet days. Coming up, we'll look at how this war has shifted the political dial in countries across Europe. That's after a quick word from a colleague. I'm Richard Lloyd Parry, and I'm the Asia editor of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm based in Tokyo. I cover a stretch of the world from Myanmar to Japan, and subjects ranging from North Korean nuclear proliferation to sumo wrestling. The podcast that you're listening to is only possible thanks to the subscribers to The Times and Sunday Times. So please do consider subscribing today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The war in Ukraine has led to some profound soul-searching 
about the relationships and economic ties that have been built up with Russia over a number of decades. In particular, it's triggered a huge rethink in Germany. It's been an enormous change for Germany because we had this period after 2014 when there were various sanctions on Russia, but notwithstanding that, an agreement was signed to open a second Nord Stream pipeline. And, you know, Germany, which in the past few years, has past few decades, has become increasingly dependent on Russian oil, Russian gas, showed every sign of continuing that dependency, despite the occupation of Crimea. Then, suddenly, under Olaf Scholz, who became Chancellor in December of 2021, almost immediately after the invasion, he declared what he called a Zeitenwende, which is like a watershed moment, a tectonic shift. And he basically came very close to admitting that the whole German model, based essentially on cheap Russian energy and exporting goods to China, required a very dramatic revision. He announced a massive increase in military spending, and he suggested that Germany has got to become a much more assertive country. We must support Ukraine in this desperate situation. But with the invasion of Ukraine, we have entered a new era. We stand by our duty of support in NATO. President Putin should not underestimate our determination to defend every square meter of alliance territory together with our allies. Until now, the United Germany has been a sort of an economic giant, but a pygmy when it comes to military spending. And he has signaled that this has really got to change. This has been a big kind of wake-up call for Germany. And I mean, the extent to which this will be implemented remains to be seen. Germany is quite a bureaucratic, slow-moving country when it comes to changing things. But I mean, certainly as far as striking a new tone is concerned, I think it is a serious commitment. I, I think one should also highlight the peculiarity of the German relationship with Russia, which to a great extent has been shaded by guilt, as it were, of the Second World War, the fact that Germany invaded the Soviet Union, the huge number of people that died there, to which the Ukrainian response is, hang on, we were part of the Soviet Union too, and you invaded us too, so why are you only feeling guilty towards the Russians? The second one also, I think, is this almost feeling of gratitude to the Soviet Union, but which in the German mind translates into Russia, this gratitude to Mikhail Gorbachev for allowing, inverted commas, the reunification of Germany. But I think there's no doubt that is going to change. It has to change. Could I just come in on that? I was very struck from the perspective of Kiev of looking at a lot of the coverage back in the UK that seemed to be very led by Downing Street under Boris Johnson, who was constantly slagging off Germany's reactions and bafflingly to me, to be honest, I'm trying to sort of big up the differences between European countries. I don't think in Britain we've really given enough credit to how far Germany's had to travel in a very short period of time. And yes, as Peter says, of course, they do do everything slowly, but it is a remarkable turnaround in the course of just a few months to go from that history of the guilt of the Second World War and their feelings about projecting military power 
to where they've got to. I think that they had a lot further to travel than any other European country. And Catherine, you mentioned earlier how the British press and the British government had talked about the British response to Ukraine. Has this been a moment post-Brexit for Britain to matter again? I think it has. It was definitely an example of how Britain could lead. I think that Boris Johnson, for his own vanity, rather over-exaggerated his role in the whole thing and was aided in doing so by his personal warm friendship with President Zelensky and the fact that he just, as a character, rather appealed to the Ukrainians. I always feel a bit slightly sorry for President Biden that he hasn't really got enough credit for the enormous amount of support that he's given to Ukraine compared to Britain. Because Boris Johnson was just this much more colourful, interesting character who kept turning up in Kyiv every time something went wrong for him in London. Thank you. everybody. I'm Boris Johnson from London. And uh, I just want you to know that we support you. Slava Ukraini. Good luck. I'm not sure that it fooled much of the rest of Europe, but I think that it was appreciated that Britain actually did have the ability to show leadership in that way. When you're in Ukraine, do Ukrainians talk to you about it? Do they, do they talk about Britain's role? Oh my God, constantly. Yes, absolutely. Oh, oh, Boris. Oh, they love him. There's like murals of him and stuff. Really? Yes, absolutely. I once got um, one of my best stories. I winkled out to some Ukrainian soldiers by showing them a picture of Jack Hill, the Times topographer, with Boris Johnson on my phone and saying, look, that's Jack with Boris Johnson. And they like immediately opened up. But I think that is quite a, a localised thing. And I think that is very Ukraine specific. Obviously, Britain is in a pretty dire economic situation. That remains to be seen how that is going to play out over the next year. But I, I think and I hope we can look forward to a more mature relationship with our European neighbours under the current administration. This year, we saw Britain's relations with some of its neighbours hit an all-time low. But in autumn, Rishi Sunak appeared to want a reset. At the COP27 climate summit in Egypt, he and his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, appeared to hit it off. Has a new Prime Minister and a year of cooperation over Ukraine improved Britain's relationships with its European neighbours? No, I don't think it, it really has. These things are quite compartmentalised. You can be a French politician, you can be impressed by... Britain's stand on Ukraine, but that doesn't stop you being very annoyed by Britain's stance on the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example. You know, I don't think it's been really helpful, unfortunately. Over the past year, we've seen this growing fixation, obviously, with the small boats coming across the Channel, the feeling, certainly under, under Boris Johnson and also under, under Liz Truss, that the French weren't doing enough to stop the boats coming across. And there was obviously the famous quote from Liz Truss during her election 
campaign within the party when she was asked whether she viewed France as being an ally or not. Um, but President Macron, friend or foe? The, the jury's out. But if I, if I, if I, if I, if I become, if I become prime minister, I'll judge him on deeds, not words. Which was obviously noticed very clearly in France. There are hopes, I think, on this side of the channel that the arrival of Rishi Sunak will change things. It was great to meet President Macron to talk about not just tackling illegal migration, but the range of other areas in which we want to cooperate closely with the French on. And actually, I've been talking to other European leaders as well about our shared challenge in tackling illegal migration. And I think there is an opportunity for us to work closely, but not just with the French, but with other countries as well. That being said, though, there is a fundamental problem that however different the tone is coming from Britain, however different the approach is, however much, you know, on a personal level, relations are warmer, that there is this sort of fundamental European position that there was a deal that Britain signed up for and that Britain has, having signed it all, has been trying to wriggle out of it or to change the terms of it. And ultimately, the bottom line is... Britain signed up for this deal, and it's got to stick to it. We've mentioned France, but in a way, the Ukraine war again was another moment where the spotlight really fell on Macron, and he also won an election. How popular is he in the country at the moment, and what are the issues that really are playing out in France for him? Well, Macron was re-elected in April, which wasn't really that much of a surprise. Vive la République! He was up against Marine Le Pen for the second time running. He didn't beat her perhaps as convincingly as some people thought that he would do. I mean, he won in the sort of second round runoff 59% to 41%. What I think was significant here was that there were parliamentary elections which took place a couple of months later. And what happened there was that his party lost its parliamentary majority, which put him in a very curious, unprecedented situation, really, as far as French politics was concerned, which was that you had a, a newly elected president, but with a parliament that wasn't behind him. So what effectively has happened is that uh, his prime minister, Elizabeth Bourne, has to put together kind of ad hoc coalitions to get different measures through. And he hasn't actually achieved an awful lot in the eight months or so since his election. Most of the energy, I think, has been devoted to the economic crisis, which has hit France in the same way as it's hit everyone else. Although I think with one important difference, which is that the French have very, very heavily subsidised energy prices from the beginning. So we haven't in France seen the rises in energy bills that people in Britain have seen. I think of my own example, the price I'm paying to, to heat and uh, for light in my Paris flat is exactly the same as it was last year, oh, wow. which is, is quite extraordinary. And as a result of that, inflation is about sort of 6-7% in France compared with 10% plus in Britain and in most other European countries. So France has pursued a slightly different course, which has meant they've had less industrial strife than Britain has had, which is surprising because they normally have an awful lot of industrial strife in France. But he's got problems looming on the horizon. One of the only memorable policies, I think, from his, his election campaign was 
a reform of France's hugely generous uh, pension system. But it's going to, I think, lead to a lot of trouble. And I think that's going to be an issue that is very, very big in France in, in the course of January. And Catherine, if we're looking at the world in 2023, it's impossible not to talk about China. How much has the war in Ukraine changed China's relationship with Russia and with the rest of the world? I think that the Chinese relationship with Russia is an uneasy one based currently on their strategic rivalry with the West, but it's a marriage of convenience. And I'm not sure the Chinese are quite thought that whatever they were told was going to happen in Ukraine has gone the way they thought it was. So I think they're watching uneasily. Now, for themselves, economically, they have been doing better than most. This is a really tough moment to make predictions about China for the next year because they are in a really strange position where they've had these protests over the no COVID policy, which they've just abandoned. And it looks very much like they are on the cusp of an absolutely massive COVID wave. They have got an awful lot of unvaccinated elderly, so goodness knows what that means. I mean, we've seen predictions of a million deaths in the next year in China. I just don't know what that means for their stability um, domestically, for their economic development this year. There's obviously been the question of what their intentions are towards Taiwan. Xi made it very clear at the Congress in October that that remained an objective to reunify Taiwan with mainland China. But I am really hesitant to make any bets on what's going to happen with China because of what's coming down the, the line for them in terms of COVID in the next 12 months. In terms of the rest of the world's relations with China, we are seeing a lot of the same economic uncoupling that we've seen over the last year, for example, where there's much more awareness of the dangers of relying on China for your supply chains, what that means for your national security. The big unknown between that is, is where that leaves the rest of the world that we ignore so often, the global south, the countries that are not on board with our position on Ukraine, for example, where they line up. If they continue to depend on China, which likely they will because they need to have that investment, it has to come from somewhere. And it's probably not going to be coming from a West that is extremely distracted and involved with the war in Ukraine and facing its own issues of energy crisis and runaway inflation. It is fascinating, isn't it? It does feel like the, the world is lining up to take sides now. Things, things are, are dividing much more. That's how it feels to me. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And I think it's been, a, it's been a clarifying year for that. Yeah. And do you think for China, having seen how much the Ukraine war, the sort of fallout for, from it, do you think it makes it more or less likely that they'll look to Taiwan as, as a, a place they, they might want to invade? There are two ways to approach this. You could say, oh my goodness, China must be looking at the West's unity 
against Russia and what Russia did in Ukraine and thinking, wow, we didn't expect them to go so hard on that. Okay, take a step back. Conversely, you could argue that China thinks the West's got its hands full dealing with that. So actually, this is a great moment to do this. There's only so many weapons that the West has and people's stocks of weapons are running lower than is comfortable for anyone at the moment because of what they're giving to Ukraine. So you could argue that that is a a moment of opportunity for China. And you can argue the converse as well, that China doesn't want to be the new Russia. Peter, looking ahead to 2023, what are the things you'll be watching? What are the big stories that you think are are going to unfold across the world? And how long do you think Ukraine will still be on the front page of newspapers? I fear Ukraine will be an issue for a long, long time, probably for the whole of the year, because even if we do get a peace deal of some sort, negotiations and whatever, then attention will focus to the enormous cost of reconstructing the country, which will be billions and billions of pounds. And also, I suppose there will be a lot of discussion about how to deal with Russia, and obviously it will depend on the circumstances in which that peace is done, whether Putin is still in the Kremlin or has stepped down for some reason, maybe for medical reasons, or maybe has announced that he won't stand again for the presidency, and that the presidential election is not until 2024. In any case, I think the enormity of what is continuing to happen in Ukraine is going to just dominate 2023 in the same way that it dominated 2022. As far as the rest of Europe is concerned, what we didn't mention also, I think was quite important, was the election in Italy of Giorgia Maloney from the far-right Brothers of Italy party as that country's new leader, which happened after the elections there in September. We will build a solid, cohesive government with a strong, popular mandate, which will remain in power for five years, whether the left likes it or not. And she, despite all the predictions, seems to be quite secure in power, despite predictions to the contrary. So she will continue there. So no no major upheavals. I think the only country of any size where we've got elections in 2023 is, is Poland, where the, the conservative government there will be trying to, to get re-election. And I think it, I think it probably will. But, you know, we're going to see the continued economic consequences, obviously, of the war in Ukraine, in, in terms of inflation, in terms of recession, and the possible political consequences that will have in terms of the popularity of existing governments. It's not going to be easy for any of these leaders any more than it is going to be for the British government. Yeah, of course. And Catherine, how about you? What are your big predictions or the big areas that you'll be watching over 2023? I'm not making terribly many plans that don't involve Ukraine for the next year because I I do think it's going to run and run. I'm going to put my cards on the table and say I I don't expect to see a negotiated resolution to this in the next year. We say yes, all wars end in negotiations and compromise, but they don't. In fact, the conflict that Russia fomented in Ukraine in 2014 when it took Crimea and then backed separatist 
or engineered separatist movements in the Donbass, that just became a frozen conflict. And it's not impossible that this could go that way, even with the Western involvement. I've actually just come back from Afghanistan, which is in a parlous state, which I know that not many people care about anymore. But unless things change there very rapidly, the country is sliding into full-scale famine. We are going to have to make decisions about what we do with the Taliban and whether we are prepared to deal with them as a government or whether we're prepared to punish the Afghan people who are the ones who are suffering. Because when we pulled out, all of the foreign support, financial support for that government was taken away. And that constituted 80% of Afghanistan's budget. And it's just gone. Two other things that I'm looking at or have in the back of my mind for the next year are the Turks are launching a bit of a stealth campaign in Syria against the Kurdish regions there. And we're in a difficult situation with Turkey because we've allowed them to take this position where they are a kind of bridge between the West and Russia. They've worked themselves into a very cunning diplomatic position over a number of years. You know, the West treats the Turks you know, with kid gloves. And yet the Kurds were meant to be our allies in Syria and worked with us there against ISIS. And yet now the Turks are moving against the Kurds. I wonder what we will do, if anything, about that. And the other issue is that Israel has just obviously got its most extreme right wing government in its entire history. I think we all kind of know where we are with Netanyahu. He's got some quite reckless, quite extreme coalition partners now that are more concerning. And so there are all sorts of questions over whether pressure will now build to actually start to formally annex the West Bank. And I think that's worth watching. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times diplomatic correspondent, Catherine Philp, and Peter Conradi, Europe editor for The Sunday Times. You can find all of Catherine and Peter's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Chris Wade. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, whatever may happen. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 